Our sermon text this morning is from Matthew chapter 25. We'll finish Matthew 25 this morning. So it's page 831 in the Hubeck Bible. Page 831, Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, where we will start. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And they will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? Did not, did not minister to you. Then will answer them, saying, Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Pray. Lord, all of us in here hear this, and none of us wants to ever be accused of not loving and caring for our Savior, Jesus Christ. May that never be said of anyone in this room. But Lord, we know that you've given us this word as a, as a warning to prevent that from happening. So Lord, I pray that as we read this word from you, from your very breath, that we would understand it, not just mentally, but deep in who we are. Give us an understanding of this exhortation from our Savior this morning. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. Well, I want to give you some context this morning as we begin our study of this passage. It's been a while since we had a 
context update. So we're looking this morning at what is actually, we don't normally read it this way because we piece this text out, but we're looking at what is actually the conclusion of a sermon from Jesus. So this sermon, which we have split uh, over the past several months into seven parts, this sermon actually began back at the beginning of Matthew chapter 24. We were there in the middle of May. In, the, in this entire sermon, Matthew chapter 24 and 25 is concerned end times. Not just end, end times, final judgment day, but also Jesus has also been telling his disciples about the near future for them and the end of that earthly temple structure and the end of Jerusalem as the center of worship. And some of this sermon that we've been listening to from Christ has, has clearly been about that judgment of Jerusalem and, and the temple and, and the people who have rejected Christ in that day. And some of this sermon has clearly been about the last day, judgment day, final judgment day. And in some of this sermon, he's been talking about both. But the point of this passage, the point of Jesus' message, his sermon on the Mount, or not on the Mount, but Sermon on the Mount of Olives, it's not all the details about the end, right? The end is the setting. The, the point of the message he has consistently been preaching to his disciples is to warn them and encourage them and prepare them for what is to come. And what is to come is judgment on Jerusalem, but what is to come is also a long period of waiting for them. After all, remember, it is the disciples who he's delivering this sermon to. His disciples are sitting there on the Mount of Olives, on that hillside, listening to Jesus. One of the things we really need to understand about these two chapters, 24 and 25, is that the way that Matthew arranges his gospel for us is that this is the last extended teaching from Jesus. So, so while John, if you read John's gospel, you get that really long upper room discourse. And if you read Luke's gospel, you get Jesus' teaching on the road to Emmaus. Matthew has this extended sermon on Christ's return as his parting message for them. And this is the gist of it. I'm going to be killed, I'm going to be buried, but I'm going to rise again and then go away, and I won't come back for God only knows how long. But this is what you are to do while you wait. This is how you are to wait. And if we were to summarize chapter 24 and 25 into one word, I think we could summarize it with the word faithful. You are to wait faithfully. We are to be, as Christians, in faithful service to Christ while we await his return. And the Christian life really is all about faithfulness to Christ, isn't it? Being faithful to Christ. So in this last text, this last bit of preaching from Jesus, this conclusion, he shows us very clearly what faithfulness looks like. What does it look like to be faithful to Christ? What is it? Faithful, faithfulness to Christ is serving Him through loving one another. Faithfulness to Christ is serving Christ through loving one another. Therefore, we will be judged by our love for one another. 
So as we approach that, that's the, the main idea, we're going to walk through this text a little more verse by verse than we have been in the last few weeks, because there's a lot verse by verse to unpack, some very loaded verses that I, that I want us to see. So this all begins with Jesus, this, the end of the sermon begins with Jesus teaching about that final day of judgment, and this is very clearly about that final day. Look at verse 31 with me. And I would encourage you this morning to keep your Bibles open and, and look at these verses. We're going to be going around God's Word a good bit, but keep your Bible open to Matthew 25. So here we are, verse 31 of Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Now this, we hear this and we just think, oh, this is just Jesus telling us about that last day. But what's interesting here, this is an interesting scene because we have... A lot of Old Testament pictures, if you read the Old Testament, you see a lot of prophecies about that coming judgment day. A lot of pictures of that day in the Old Testament. But none of them is exactly like what Jesus describes here. What Jesus is doing here in, in verse 31 and in verses that follow is he's taking a number of those Old Testament scenes and he's bringing them all together in one picture. He's showing us how it all fits together, taking all that Old Testament prophecy about the judgment day, and he's putting it here in one picture for us. So think of it like puzzle pieces that he is putting together. And we step back and we look at it and we see how all of those scenes are fulfilled in what Jesus teaches. That's not the point of this passage, but it's the foundation of this passage. It's something that, that Matthew wants us to understand. So, so keep your finger there on, on Matthew 25, verse 31. And I want to show you all of the puzzle pieces that Jesus is putting together here. All right? So, so we see our first of two pieces uh, uh, in Daniel 7. There's two pieces that Jesus brings to this picture from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. I'll put it on the screen for you. Jesus, uh, Daniel says, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. See the seat? His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. That's, that's judgment language. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him in judgment. They're, they're receiving their judgment. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. That's a judgment day language, isn't it? Don't you see that here? Lots of judgment stuff. So, so there in verses 9 and 10, you have all the world, the, the 10,000 times 10,000, that doesn't just mean 100 million. That, that, that is a, the largest number in the language times the largest number in the language. That, it's a fill-in for all people. It represents all people. whole world is standing there before the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days, who is, who is God himself, Yahweh, he is standing or sitting on his throne in judgment. And we see that he is, that this is God from Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The, the everlasting to everlasting one, the ancient of days, that's God himself. The Lord God, Yahweh. So in this puzzle piece, we have the Lord God judging over the earth from his throne. That's one puzzle piece. Brought forward to Matthew 25. And then our next piece we see from the very next passage in Daniel. Daniel 7 verses 13 and 14. Son of man. That's the Messiah. 
He's going to be given the kingdom. Son of man goes to the ancient of days to receive his kingdom. Look at 7.13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. What Jesus is doing here in our passage in Matthew is saying that the Son of Man, having already received all the authority and dominion, is the one who will sit on the glorious throne. And he will judge the world. So Jesus is interpreting Daniel 7 for us. He's teaching us what Daniel 7 is about. Showing us that he fulfills, Jesus fulfills the role of God as judge, and Jesus fulfills the role as the Son of Man who receives the kingdom. He's God, and he's man. Two puzzle pieces fit together. Therefore, it's Matthew 25. Now, another piece of the picture here is Zechariah, chapter 14, verse 5. Now, at the end of this passage, when the Lord God comes, and again, that's Yahweh, Lord God comes, the the eternal creator God. When God comes in judgment, he comes, as Zechariah says, with all his holy ones with him. Do you see that? That's his angels. We see that in our passage in verse 31, don't we? When the Son of Man comes in his glory, when the Lord God, also Son of Man, comes in all his glory, and all the angels with him. Now, why is Jesus evoking for us Zechariah 14? Well, Because, just a couple later verses in Zechariah 14, Zechariah tells us, and the Lord, when he comes on that day, will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. So the Lord, when he comes, he will come with his angels, and then he'll be king over all the earth. All right? What's Jesus saying here in our passage? Jesus, the Son of Man, the Christ, is coming with his angels, going to judge. And then in verse 34, look at verse 34 in Matthew 25. He's described as the king. See that? See what's going on here? Jesus is pulling together a lot of Old Testament into judgment day. Now on to verse 32 in our text. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now now in Daniel 7, the people before the judge are the 10,000 times 10,000. But Jesus here says all the nations before him. He's using specific language. That scene of all the nations before God on Judgment Day, that scene is an echo of Joel 3. You didn't expect all this Old Testament today, did you? Joel chapter 3. For behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations, there they are, bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel. What's Jesus doing? Watch this. He's adding another piece of the puzzle to that day of judgment. And he's saying that day of judgment is the day of judgment of the nations. And interestingly, and this is fascinating, and some of you will be excited by this, and some of you won't care, but this is fascinating to me. Joel says that the nations on that day are judged in accordance with how they treated Israel. All right? And I know this is getting a little bit ahead, but Jesus is telling us on that judgment day when all the nations are gathered, 
they are judged in accordance to how they treated Jesus' people. See that? We'll see that a little bit further. Joel says the nations are judged for the treatment of Israel, and Jesus says that that is fulfilled by how the nations treated his followers. Why? Because the church is the, the fulfillment of Israel. And there's one more puzzle piece added to this scene that Jesus is putting together. It comes from Ezekiel 34. In Ezekiel 34, the Lord is pronouncing judgment over Israel. And he says, since the shepherds, that is the kings of Israel and the priests of Israel, have not been caring for his flock, God himself is going to come down and be their shepherd. Ezekiel 34, 15. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. And we've already seen this in Matthew's gospel. Remember earlier in Matthew when Jesus looked out and saw all of Israel as sheep without a shepherd? Remember that? And then he sent his disciples to gather them into him. He was saying, I'm going to be the shepherd, Yahweh, Lord God, the shepherd king who rules over his people. But there's something that that shepherd does in Ezekiel 34 that I want you to see. Ezekiel 34, 17. When God the shepherd comes... He says this, as, you, as for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, I judge, there's judgment language, between sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. What's happening in our passage? He's judging between sheep and goats, isn't he? So, so the shepherd who comes is going to judge between the sheep and the goats. Let's put it all together. All of these puzzle pieces, Jesus is giving us a picture of. Jesus is the son of man who receives dominion and authority, fulfills Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Jesus is the ancient of days who will judge over all people, fulfilling Daniel 7, 9 and 10. Jesus is the Lord God who will come with all his angels, fulfilling Zechariah 14. And he will rule over all the earth as king, also fulfilling Zechariah 14. And Jesus is the Lord God who will judge over the nations, fulfilling Joel chapter 3. And Jesus is the Lord God who is the good shepherd who judges between the sheep and the goats, fulfilling Ezekiel 34. Oh, all right there in that, just a couple little verses. What are we seeing here? Just slow down for a moment. Again and again and again, Jesus fulfills the promises of God. Jesus is God. Friends, this is just a reminder that if you're, if you're ever wondering whether Jesus is truly divine, you don't just have John 1 or Hebrews 1 or Colossians 1. These first few verses of our passage, if we rightly understand what the apostle is doing for us here, these first few verses are clearly preaching Jesus is the divine shepherd, king, judge, who rules over all the nations. Jesus fulfills the promises that the prophets said Yahweh would fulfill. Because Jesus is Yahweh. He is the Lord God. Now what does that have to do with faithfully waiting for the return of Christ? It's not just a fun excursion into biblical theology for me. Remember, the disciples are about to see this man who's preaching to them on that hillside. They're about to see him die. They're being reminded right here of just who it is 
that is going to that cross. Jesus is making magnificent claims about himself right here. And and, and those claims will put into perspective his resurrection. He's claiming things about himself that the resurrection will prove are true. And you know what will happen when that happens? That will give the disciples an anchor to keep them steady for the rest of their lives. Jesus told us that he was the fulfillment of these scriptures, and then he rose again and he proved it. And they'll never forget that. That will be what gives them motivation to continue to spread the gospel, the good news of Jesus as the Messiah. It will give them a reason to be faithful to Jesus in his absence. When they see his resurrection, they'll know he really is king. He really is. He really is worthy of our worship. He really is worthy of our devotion. He is worth dying for. He is worth all of our lives because he's truly God and our Bibles tell us that God will one day return as judge. Jesus will return as judge. We must be faithful to him. Okay, so that's why I shared all that with you, but let's keep going. Verse 34. Look at verse 34. Then the king, remember he's king. Don't forget that. He's been given all rule and authority. He is the Christ, the anointed king. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. All right, now hold on a minute. Didn't we just see that Jesus is Yahweh? Didn't we just see Jesus is the one true eternal God? That's what all those passages were showing, right? How does the one and only eternal God have a father? Well, the word Trinity isn't here. But this is certainly Trinitarian language. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of what Yahweh said he would do, because Jesus is the Lord God. And yet, it's also very clear that Jesus, the eternal son, is speaking here of his father. How can God have a father? This only makes sense if God is triune. We worship one God in Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, and Trinity in unity, the one and only God. So God the Son here in verse 34 is saying that God the Father, let's move on, God the Father has prepared the eternal kingdom for those who are blessed by the Father. And that preparation took place when? After their good deeds? No, not after their good deeds. From before the ages began, before the foundation of the world, the Father prepared these things for those whom he would bless. Who are these people, these blessed ones of the Father, blessed by the Father? Who are the people who are blessed by the Father here? Well, this is the church. This is the elect. This is those who are predestined by God to receive Christ in his kingdom. That's exactly what Jesus is saying, and that's exactly what we read in Ephesians chapter 1. One of the odd things about this doctrine, what we call the doctrine of predestination, is that those who are predestined are still judged. 
That's very clear in this text, isn't it? This has been prepared for them from before the foundation of the world, and yet they're judged. Or as Jesus puts it here, they're, they're sorted. They're sorted out according to their sheepishness or goatishness. Elsewhere, he's described this day, so we saw this earlier in Matthew, he's described this day as the separating of the, the wheat from the tares, the wheat from the weeds. Or the same chapter of Matthew, it's, he's separating the good fish from the bad fish. Either way, the day of judgment is a sorting of sorts. But it's not just a sorting out of morally neutral parties, is it? Where all things are equal. We are judged according to our works. And our works show whether or not we have received the grace of God, the blessing of God. And that process is what Jesus is describing here in the following verses. So in verses 35 and 36, Jesus tells those on his right, that remember these are the sheep, the, the true church, those blessed by the Father, he tells them how it is that he has the judge has determined that they are the ones who have been blessed by the Father from before the foundations of the world. How does Jesus know that they are sheep? How does he know that they are the elect? What is the judge looking for to determine their sheepishness or or goatishness? He's looking for their faithful service to the king. On judgment day, We are judged according to our faithfulness to the king. Those who are blessed from before time began and then welcomed into the kingdom are those who, look at verse 35, fed the king. I I was hungry. and You gave me food. You see the personal pronouns? It's their treatment of the king that they are judged by. The judge is looking for those who belong in the kingdom. So he's judging according to those who love and serve the king. Kingdom people love and serve the king. They are faithful to their king. Their love of the king is evidence of their being kingdom people. You see that connection? If you're American, you act American. If you're a kingdom citizen, you act like a kingdom citizen. Because you are a kingdom citizen. But here's the problem. And these righteous kingdom citizens that are blessed by the Father, they know there's a problem here. The problem is that the king has been away from them for a very long time. And he's just now returning in judgment. He's come with his angels. That's the scene. And they're like, where were you? How could they have possibly been feeding him and clothing him and visiting him and so on? If he's been gone, do you understand their their question? Look at verses 37 through 39 in our passage. That's what they're asking. But King Jesus, when did we see you? And do these things for you? I don't remember that. You were gone. You came. But Jesus, look at his answer to them in verse 40. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Well, now this is the puzzle, isn't it? Who are the least of these, his brothers? There are a couple of things going on here. The least of these and my brothers. I, I at first thought that he meant 
when I read this at first and studied it, I thought that he just meant one of the least of his brothers. That's not what's happening here. I actually think the least of these and my brothers are two ways of saying the same thing. All right, so, so if you remember back earlier in Matthew's gospel, it's been a while, Jesus sent out his disciples to announce the gospel. Do you remember that? Two by two, he sent them out. They would go house to house. Jesus said that whoever would receive the disciples was receiving him and the one who sent him. And look at the way he describes that. I think this is Matthew chapter 10, verse 42. Whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. He's calling his disciples there who's sending out his little ones, one of the least ones. And that same phrase was used to tell of the consequences of those who lead Jesus' followers away. So back in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus said, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Same language. And then he says, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it'd be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. So little ones throughout Matthew's gospel, or children, or the least of these throughout the gospel has been a stand-in, the way of Jesus describing his followers. But so has the phrase, my brothers and sisters. Look at Matthew chapter 12, verse 49 and 50. Stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And we saw when we studied that passage that it is those who do the will of God by following Jesus. Those are the people who are Jesus' disciples, his true disciples, his mother and brothers and sisters, his family. So let's bring those two together. The least of these, my brothers, is Jesus' way of saying those who are followers of Christ will not be thought of highly in this world. That's why he calls them the least of these. They are, in the world's estimation, the least important people in the world. That's you and me. The least important people in the world. And we would do well as Christians to remember that's who we are. We often sinfully crave the renown of the world, the fame of the world or even just sometimes the acceptance of the world. We'll just take acceptance sometimes. But brothers and sisters, that is not our calling. We should never expect the world to accept who we are or what it is that we believe unless they're born again by the Spirit. Christians, least of these little ones, we believe weird stuff, okay? Our king, our hero, lives in heaven and nobody can see him. Just think about the way that sounds to the world. Our citizenship, where we really belong, is with him in his coming kingdom. Just think about that. I think we forget that. And often we just think that, that we as, we're, we're just Americans with conservative values. And that's what makes us different. We're just like the, the Fox News people. That's not who we are. We are citizens of another world entirely. 
and we happen to live in this particular place in this world. We are aliens here. We are strangers here. We don't belong here. We've been purchased by a homeless man from heaven who came to earth and was killed as a criminal because he claimed to be God. Think about this. And he was buried in someone else's tomb because he didn't even have his own money, a way to buy his own tomb. And then he rose again. And who saw him? 500 people. The majority of people didn't believe that he rose. The majority of people didn't see him. 500 people saw him. We, we don't even have popular consensus on our side. We are on the wrong side of history. And, and then this guy rose and he told his followers to spread the news of his resurrection and how he forgives sins. And then he, he went up into heaven and he sent someone we call the Holy Spirit. Or let's just be really weird in King James and call him the Holy Ghost. So now we believe that this spirit ghost God goes around enlivening people to believe in the king that nobody can see so that they can live forever and be with him forever when he comes back. Guys, that's weird. In the eyes of the world, we are weird. Get over it. Stop trying to be acceptable to the world and all of their weird views and just accept. Just like Jesus told us, we are the least. And we'll always be the least in this world. But that's okay. Do you know why? Because we are brothers and sisters of the king. That's where our hope is. Our hope is not in greatness in the world. Our hope is in being brothers and sisters to the king. And the king is telling us here, when you who are the least of these in the world's eyes, take care of my, Jesus speaking, my brothers and sisters, when they have a need, you're showing your true allegiance. You're showing that you know what really matters. You're not caught up in the world, you're caught up in the kingdom. You're setting aside the desire to be important in the eyes of the world and get ahead in the world and be successful in the world, and instead, you're setting all that aside and honoring the king of the eternal kingdom. King Jesus is saying to these kingdom citizens, the reason I know that you belong in my kingdom, when I come on judgment day, the reason I will know that you belong in my kingdom is because when my brothers were in need, you helped them. And in so helping them, you were proving that you really loved me. You were really living to be faithful to me. You really belong to my kingdom and not the world. Personal for Jesus. You see that? He takes this personally. He loves his brothers and sisters. He loves you and me. He died to redeem his brothers and sisters into the kingdom. He loves them. They're citizens of his kingdom. They are the people that when he stands before the Father, they're the ones he represents. They're the ones that he intercedes for. They're his people. And so how you treat his people is important to him. He takes it personally. And he takes it so personally that when Saul, remember Saul who became Paul, when he was persecuting Christians, Jesus blinded him with his glory, knocked him off his horse, and he yelled at him from heaven. He said, why are you persecuting me? 
Jesus identifies himself with his people. And Jesus' people love other Jesus' people because they love Jesus. Now, I want to step back, step back again. All right, so we've gotten personal. Let's step back again, get a little theological again. There's a big question here. The king has just invited, in our scene here, into his eternal kingdom, those that were faithful to him, right? That's what the first half of this passage is showing us. Let me ask you, what earned them the right to be in the kingdom? What earned them their place in his kingdom? It's not their care for their brothers. That's backwards. They didn't earn entrance into the kingdom. Verse 34 precedes everything else. It precedes, verse 34, was before everything began, right? So Jesus has already told us the Father showed these people, the blessed ones, his grace from before the ages began. Their inheritance of the kingdom is owing 100% to that sovereign grace. But the evidence of that grace from the Father is that they faithfully served the king of the kingdom that they'd been called into. And they did that by caring for the king's family. If there's anything you need to know and remember about the grace of God that we've been trying to communicate from this pulpit for a long time, if there's anything you need to know about the grace of God, his sovereign electing grace, is that it is a transforming grace. God's grace transforms us into kingdom citizens who live and act as those who belong in the kingdom. One of the most fundamental traits of those who have received this transforming grace and, and have been brought from death to life, John said it, and have become kingdom citizens, one of the, the most obvious bright traits is their love for other Christians. That's what Jesus is getting at here. In John's gospel, Jesus says that that is the one command. So in John, in that last sermon that he gives his disciples, they're in the upper room there. It's already after the Mount of Olives, but John brings this out. He says, this is my commandment, Jesus speaking, that you love one another as I have loved you. That's his only commandment. Love one another. And we see this echoed all over the New Testament. Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6 is a really challenging chapter, and the writer is giving this church that he's speaking to a really stern warning about falling away. And he says, but I'm not too worried about you. You know why? What gives him confidence that even though they've got some misunderstandings of the law and the gospel and how those fit together, he knows they're saved. He knows they belong to Christ. Just look at verse 10 of Hebrews 6. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. They, they show their faithfulness to Christ, love for the name of Christ in serving the brothers. Paul, when he writes to Philemon, he thanks the Lord that Philemon is truly in Christ Look what he says is evidence of Philemon's true, truly being in Christ. Philemon 
verses 4 through 5, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And the Thessalonians received that same commendation. 2 Thessalonians 1, 3, we ought always to give thanks to the Lord for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. That's a reason that Paul thanks God. It, is, it gives Paul confidence that the Thessalonian church is a true church because they love one another. Same with the Colossians. Colossians 1, 3-4. We always thank God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. And the Ephesians. We can just keep going. Ephesians. Ephesians 1, 15-16. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. You see the pattern? Are you starting to see a pattern in the New Testament? When Paul, the apostle, looked over a church, when he observed a church from at a distance, and he wanted to see whether or not they truly had received the grace of God, the first thing he looks for do they love one another? Do they provide for one another when there's a need? Because if, if he saw that, he thanked God. He praised God because that was evidence of their salvation. They had received the grace of God, the transforming grace of God. But if they didn't have that evidence, well, that's the issue in Corinth. The Corinthian church was divided. They weren't showing love for one another. They were showing rivalry toward one another and thinking one another better than, than the other. And Paul writes one of his longest letters to this church, excoriating them. And he spends an entire chapter in that letter telling them that nothing else matters if they don't love one another. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that's not a wedding passage. That's a rebuke from Paul to this church. He's telling them in that chapter, it doesn't matter if they can preach. It doesn't matter if they can prophesy. It doesn't matter if they can speak in tongues. It doesn't matter if they can raise the dead. And they move mountains. It doesn't matter if they give away all that they have and go live in a cave somewhere. If they don't, what, love one another, then there is no evidence that they're in Christ. Because that's what Christ is looking for on Judgment Day. Loving one another by serving one another is Kingdom Citizenship 101. To be faithful to Christ, to love and serve Christ, means to love and serve the body of Christ. We saw that in our scripture reading today, didn't we? In 1 John, echoing Jesus. Clearly what John is echoing here. This love is not just a feeling. It's not just something you say. This is an action. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, it closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, in deed, and in truth. Spirit is teaching us here in John, in, in 1 John, and this is Jesus' message too. We don't just say we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's meaningless. It's something we show. 
what Jesus is teaching in Matthew. It's what Paul is teaching throughout his letters. It's what Peter teaches. It's what Hebrews teaches. It's what John teaches. It's something we show. It's evidence of being born again. If anyone has the world's goods, and what is the world's goods? Well, certainly money, but it's also food, drink, clothing, time. And sees his brother in need of these things, brother meaning another Christian. Then that person, if they're truly in Christ, they will give to meet those needs. They will. Not might. They will. Because they're truly in Christ. And they love that brother because they love Christ. What is not happening here, and we need to be clear here, I don't think he means here that we are to scour the world looking for Christians in need. There is not an expectation here that out of the 1 billion estimated, maybe 2 billion Christians in all the world, that you, Mike, have to go and ensure that all of them are fed, clothed, and visited. You can't do that. All right? Santa Claus isn't real. Sorry, kids. All right? It's much simpler than that. John says when you see your brother in need and you have the means to meet that need, you meet the need. The unrighteous, though, in our passage in Matthew, they're judged because they saw those needs. They saw the needs of other Christians and they did not meet those needs. Look at how Jesus rebukes them. Look at verse 42 and following. You gave me no food. You gave me no drink. You did not welcome me. You did not clothe me, and so on. And their question is, when do we see you? He says, you saw me in need, and I'm paraphrasing here, you saw me in need when you saw my brothers in need. And you saw my brothers in need. You see, that's assumed here. You saw the need. You didn't meet the need because you don't belong to me. You don't belong in my kingdom. Look at verse 45. Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do to one of the least of these, my brothers, you didn't do to me. They aren't condemned. Listen, these people, the, the goats, they're not condemned because there are some poor people in the world somewhere. They're condemned because they didn't care for the Christians who were right in front of them. Brothers and sisters, there are, brother, there, are, there are Christians around you who are church members with you. And when they have a need, the question is, are you eager to love them? Not, we're not talking about a begrudging, doing this in order to get my salvation. It's not, no. Okay? But are you eager to love them because you love Christ? So when we collect a benevolence offering, this is a very simple thing that we do as a church. You give to that, knowing that those offerings go to help your brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you give a portion of your income to the ministry of this church? And I really, you know me, I don't make this personal very often, right? But, but when you give to the ministry of the church, there are three families here that are literally fed and clothed by what you give. This shirt, I, I bought this from your money. <laughs> you, don't give me clothes. Give me, yeah. <laughs> I, <laughs> I'll pick out my own clothes. Yeah, let's broaden that out, all right? We are about, as a church, we are about to enter a Christmas holiday season, right? And as Southern Baptists, when, when we enter this season, 
we give to missionaries joyfully. We give to missionaries who rely on your gifts in order to eat and drink and be clothed while they proclaim the gospel. Do you give so that they can do that? Because they are brothers and sisters in Christ. They are the least of these in the world. Some of them, that's a lot more real than it is for us here in America. They really are the least of these. If it's found out that they're in Christ, they will be persecuted. Are you giving to support them? But there are more needs than, than these, right? It's not just financial. We have, there are modern needs. When someone needs a ride, you give them a ride. Or is that too much of a burden? Uh, maybe not. When a church member needs your time, and that is the most precious commodity these days, isn't it? When a church member needs your time, it's precious, it's scarce, but do you give it to them? When another Christian needs your patience, do you give them that? When another Christian needs you to bear a burden with them, do you bear that burden with them? And then just practically, that Jesus is saying this one, if someone is sick, do you go visit them? Nobody has been imprisoned in our church for following Christ. But friends, that day is not too far off. And when it comes, know this, when that day comes, visiting them is going to be considered shameful, all right? It's not, they're not going to be locked up for being a Christian. They're going to be locked up because they said something intolerant. They're going to be locked up because they were homophobic or they were bigoted. And if you visit them, you will get canceled. Are you ready to visit a Christian brother or sister in prison if it means you lose your good reputation for that? Are you ready to do that if it means you get fired for doing that? Jesus is teaching us in this passage that if you, having been born again by the grace of God, you belong to his kingdom, you will be faithful to him by serving his brothers and sisters. We're living out that future eternal kingdom life now. Will you do that even though now in the world these brothers and sisters are the least of these in the world? Those who do not have this love for the king's family don't belong to the king. They belong to the prince of the world, the devil. In John, he says they're, they're like Cain. Cain was of the evil one, John says. And so being of the evil one, they did, he did not love those of the promise. To not love the king's family is to be of the world, to be following the prince of the power of the air, to be... To, be, to belong to the prince of the world, the devil. And so rather than entering into the kingdom on that judgment day, you go where the devil goes, that place that's prepared for him and his angels and all those who belong to him and who followed him and hated the family of the king. The place of eternal punishment 
to Jesus. Now, why are they guilty? Because even though some of them did mighty works in the name of the king, even though some of them were preachers and evangelists and Sunday school teachers and VBS teachers and churchgoers, they didn't bear the very most basic fruit of kingdom citizenship. They didn't serve the king through service to his family. And so there was no evidence of their redemption. So the question for you this morning, I know you're asking this, is do you love Jesus? Do you love the king? Is he your king? Have you been redeemed by him? Then there's only one thing we can do. Respond to his love for you by loving him and loving one another. And if it is difficult, when it is difficult, remember that the object of your love is Christ himself. Abide in Christ. Abide in him. Devote yourself to him. And his spirit in you will bear the fruit of loving his people through you. His spirit in you, through your abiding in him, will enable you to give time that you thought you didn't have, but you will. It will enable you to give, he will enable you to give money that you thought was reserved for this other stupid thing. But he will enable you to give that to the person next to you who's in need. He will enable you to give patience to that really difficult person who Christ died for. He will enable you to give forbearance to his people. Why? Because you belong to him. And you love him. Amen? Let's pray and ask for his help in this.